this is what I tend to like to de-intellectualize navigating complexity for people because it, in a way, it can become a barrier to people who don't necessarily feel that they want to go down an intellectual journey. And and so it's good to appeal to intuition in these sorts of situations because even if people don't bring that to work, they bring it to their relationships, they bring it to other things. And everybody knows how to navigate complexity. They just don't bring it to certain parts of their lives. Welcome to the Thriving in Complexity podcast. I'm your host, Suzanne Lubertilia, and I'd love for you to join me as I peek behind the scenes of complex situations and workplaces and interview leaders and experts who will challenge your thinking, inform and inspire your leadership so you and your team can thrive in the volatile, uncertain, complex and ambiguous world we live in. On today's podcast, I'm speaking with Sachin Chari. Sachin is an occupational therapist and received a PhD in patient safety from Monash University in which he researched innovative environmental design, specifically environmental nightlighting approaches to reduce inpatient falls and improve recovery. Sachin presently leads the Clinical Excellence Queensland Bridge Labs program, which is drawing in creative design, systems, and human factor science capabilities to enable healthcare innovation efforts. Among other roles in Queensland, Sachin was an International Human Factors Fellow with the MedStar Institute for Innovation in Washington, D.C. in 2016 and visiting research scientist at the Health Systems Engineering Institute in Boston, USA in 2015. Sachin has advised globally on healthcare safety, quality, and performance innovation programs. He is a vocal advocate for the greater inclusion of human-centered design and systems methods and expertise. He is a vocal advocate for the greater inclusion of human-centered design and systems methods and expertise in major reform and improvements efforts underway in healthcare today. I hope you enjoy the conversation with Sachin. Sachin, it's lovely to have you join me on the podcast today. Really looking forward to this conversation because I know that you do so many interesting things. But I wondered if we could start with what's something about you that most people wouldn't know? Yeah. Hi, Suzanne. And thanks for having me on. It's my pleasure to be here. There actually isn't a lot. I've, I've done a few of these in the past. I've talked about my dabblings in electronic music production and things like that. But there's, there's not a lot I have left <laughs> that people don't know about. <laughs> I can say though, at the moment, I'm getting very into dog training and we've got a new puppy and so i'm i'm uh, considering i've been watching a lot of youtube videos and i think this could be something that i want to be doing a bit more of you know and so uh potentially that could be something to do outside of work which no one knows about but not that interesting outside of work unfortunately well i can tell you that as an owner of a dog with problem behaviors training is a great investment <laughs> of time and effort yeah my uh, we've always had dogs and our experiences being we get these dogs with incredible potential very trainable when they start and they uh, and it's over time that degrades and i'm thinking with this one we're going to try and get it right <laughs> but uh, yeah dog training that's going to be my thing i think for the next little while oh that's great well my fingers crossed your dog doesn't have adhd like my dog because that makes it really hard to train them fingers crossed <laughs> So, um, such a new lead Bridge Labs in Queensland Health. Mm-hmm. I'm sure our listeners would love to know what Bridge Labs actually does and how you're helping people navigate the complexity associated with healthcare improvement. Sure, sure. Very happy to tell you a little bit about the program. So, the program is one of a couple of different things I do. 
which sits within the umbrella of healthcare improvement in Queensland Health. The Bridge Labs itself was an extension of work we've been doing for several years with academic partners to try and meet the capability gaps that we have uh, within healthcare in specific mm-hmm disciplines that we, we we seem to need as far as um, you know creating change at scale goes and things like creative design systems based methods things like human factors so we've had these relationships when the pandemic you know rolled around there was obviously quite a substantial need to try and address the issues that the pandemic brought but also maintain services in this rapidly evolving environment and as of many things you know it was quite a massive challenge. We probably did better in Australia than than some colleagues overseas did. And, you know, they had to deal with huge personal costs and societal impacts. But as far as healthcare went in Queensland, we did quite well. But there was an opportunity to try and innovate. And I've always had a focus on innovation. We'll probably talk about my journey into this space as on a personal level. But what tends to happen in large you know, publicly funded organizations is that in, you know, in periods of stability, you tend to proceduralize things, you go for very predictable processes. That's just natural. That's not something that that's a criticism. It's just when you don't need spare capacity to, you know, maneuver, spare capacity to creatively solve problems because the problems that you've got, there are off the shelf solutions for. In those situations, large organizations tend to lose all of that or give up all of that capacity so they can do some of the more predictable pieces of work. So we were sort of you know, uh, having come off a period of fairly, yeah. you know, comparative stability, I think nothing compares to pandemics, everything seems stable compared to that. There was that nature of, of the health system and having potentially lost some of that capacity over time and then having to find that capacity very quickly. So that was the one, cha- that was the first challenge. The other challenge is um, healthcare generally, and there's a lot of literature around this, is that healthcare as a system is incredibly complex and incredibly, incredible social complexity, incredible technical complexity. And creating change on that level requires a you know range of skills that clinicians don't actually have. And so the challenge of change making in healthcare in 2022 and 2020, more, more precisely, is quite different to the challenge of change making in the 1980s in healthcare. Mm. And so the idea that we needed to do, you know, incredible things quickly was, um, you know, there was no argument around that. The how was a difficult part as well. So there was there was that issue. Yeah. And the third thing was the problems that we were dealing with, which has been, you know, part of a longer term, I suppose, evolution of the kinds of problems we're dealing with. But certainly the pandemic exposed or shone a light on some of these problems being quite network problems. They weren't, they weren't singular problems. They lived in relationship with other problems. I'd say those are the, sort of the three driving forces why, which shaped the nature of the Bridge Labs program, which was... Um, and so, so what happened was in 2020, we tried to set up a fairly novel academic... So, so the academic comes second. So it was actually government, the healthcare academic partnership to try and scale up our ability to innovate quickly. And how we were doing that when this, again, was very opportunistic as these things tend to be. The academic sector had also been quite shaken up by the pandemics. There were no classes mm-hmm. happening. They weren't enrolling students. So a lot of the people we already worked with. So this is building off relationships we had. We didn't start cold. They had the capacity and they had a shared purpose in wanting to contribute productively to this existential threat for for mm-hmm. our in society. And so all that came together and we were able to bring academics really close to the problem spaces. People brought expertise and brought teams with expertise and we connected yeah. them to frontline workers who were problem owners. And what emerged from that was quite incredible. It was we went in you know, we were asking very basic questions as of what does collaboration look like in this? You know, it wasn't really about creating transformation at scale. It was, you know, can we even get those first things right? Mm. Is there a shared language that designers and clinicians have? Or is it just impossible to communicate about the problems? 
So we went in with an open mind and with the sense of very exploratory intentions, but we wanted to run two or three exemplars here and there and try and understand that and iterate on the top of them. But what then eventuated was this incredibly large program that was high bandwidth running, you know, 20, 30 projects simultaneously. And a lot of it was unfunded. So we did fund aspects of the work, but our partners saw the potential there. And so there was a huge amount of pro bono contribution and from, from them as well. And I have to acknowledge that. So we did a lot for very little money. And much of that has then gone on to appear successful in the normal metrics of success. Yeah. You know, project completion, funds that we've won, awards, all the rest of it. But actually, mm-hmm. I think intrinsically, it's been successful because it, once we stop supporting it, sort of virally gone forward. So I think that's the that's the strongest metric. What a just give people a sense of the types of projects yeah. that you've been doing. Yeah, so so structurally, just before I tell you that, we had three key relationships we started off with. One was with the QUT Design Lab, which is sort of the largest group of yeah, I suppose creative designers working with industry in in academia in in Australia. I think mm. the other linkage was with the Safety Science Innovation Lab at Griffith University, which brings in sort of a more social uh, systems, social safety type approach to their work with 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 industry. And the third linkage was was with the Sunshine Coast University, which was the Center for Human Factors and Social Technical Systems, which is also systems based. But what connected all of these groups was a strong humanistic frontline focus, grassroots innovation mindset, mm. and, and generally a willingness to get involved, you know, and ask questions later. <laughs> that was where we started from. Our Most of that initial work was on the QUT Design Lab end because their model was very much about going in, co-designing. And so it lent itself to rapid startup, I suppose, in many ways. Mm. And we, we worked on a whole range of problems ranging from you know, redesigning consumer experiences in pediatric ICUs to working on using design as a catalyst for creating shared identities across mm-hmm. teams coming together. We did that in the rehab space. We have quite a number of projects, some were very startup entrepreneurial type projects as well, which were, you know, which started out looking at one problem, realizing there was a whole range of other problems that could be fixed. And suddenly we were on a, you know, on a, on a technology innovation pathway. So we have lots of stories like that. But a lot of it was sense making, using design to help people understand the problems differently, bringing people to another sense of, which I think is quite close to some of the ways you approach Mm. problem exploration, but using design as a catalyst for representing, you know, a conversation in a different way and then trying to take them to a whole new space. There was a lot of that. Mm. A lot of traditional design sprints and design thinking type workshops as well. A lot of design doing as Yvonne Miller, you know, who leads the design lab, Professor Yvonne Miller often says, you know, we go in, we use prototyping as a way of understanding the problem, not to solve the problem. Yes. So a lot of that. We also did a lot of advisory um, where we brought some of these experts in. We had Professor Sidney Decker from from the Safety Science Innovation Lab come in and work with Pathology Queensland to look at how they could support the development of adaptive capacity around testing of, you know, how do you deal with a sudden influx of 20,000, you know, PCR tests in Rockhampton when your capacity mm-hmm. doesn't actually support that. And so those sorts of things, bringing a systems perspective or a resilience engineering perspective into those conversations. But that's, you know, I think a, a good starting point. Yeah. So, Jen, it's a really interesting space, isn't it? Because I go back to the comment you made about trying to do innovation these days in health versus in the 1980s is a very different proposition. And if we think about all of the different things that have been imposed on and have influenced you know, people working in the system, I thought it was really interesting that you're know, bringing in that design thinking type of mindset, yet you're 
clinicians and everyone else working within the system has been very much working under a very strong patient safety, let's systematize, let's put your controls and procedures. How did you see bringing that design thinking lens in help free up people's creativity again? Wow, that's a that's a very long answer that I'm that's forming in my head. So I might try and scale that back a little. <laughs> you know, so there's there's lots that can be said about the way healthcare now thinks about intractable issues in safety. And there's influences from evidence-based medicine into that. There's this pipeline thinking from implementation science that's in there. There's process engineering that's shaped how we think about, you know, what are signals that are worth attending to and ones that we don't care about. A lot of mechanistic uh, linear ideas there. We could unpick those a little. But as far as design thinking, I don't think it's just design thinking. It's a systemic design thinking oriented humanistic yeah. you know uh, approach that the privilege is creative problem solving rather than analytical implementation i think that's kind of how i would try and explain that and it wasn't and i i see my agency within the system as not being someone who comes in over the top and and drops this in it's about actually working interpersonally to see what what ideas are persuasive what create the momentum for people to move go on a journey and often it doesn't and that's fine too you know and so what we did was not really try and address the big question. It was really in the sense of, I'm clinically trained. I I do a little bit of clinical work here and there. And I'm an occupational therapist. We are fundamentally trained in creative therapeutic activities. It's all about creative work. So this is, you know, these capacities are there in in the people who are working within a system that doesn't tap into it. And the question which is asking is, you know, is that still innately there or have we lost all of that? Do we not have that anymore? And design was, uh, having design-led conversations and and allowing space for people to be creative, you know, was a catalyst for eliciting what might already exist. And what we can say quite definitively, it's definitely there. And it's not just OTs, obviously. It's all clinicians are incredibly creative because they're quite resourceful in trying to find solutions on the mm-hmm. fly. So there's this false narrative that we are in, that healthcare now is incredibly procedural and linear. In mm-hmm. a sense, the expectations for it to be procedural and linear are higher than they ever used to be. But the work is always the same work. It's always adaptive. Yeah. It's always been problem solving. It's always been about create creativity. So I think it's quite a natural way of working and thinking. And people take to it like ducks to water. And I, yeah. it's quite interesting. We had a recent, we the, the other part of my job, I support the healthcare improvement community of practice, which is now a thousand member strong group within Queensland Health. Lots of people outside of Queensland Health are part of it as well. It's just if we share an interest in the space, we don't say no to anyone to be part of that community. But we ran a session recently on uh, on creative methods within HICOP, which is part of a design channel. And Yvonne, who does a lot of work in research poetry and photo voice as ways of trying to elicit you know, people's journeys and creating new conversations. We we had that. And, you know, I was a bit I had a, I was a bit anxious. I was thinking, you know, what will clinicians think? Will they be receptive <laughs> to it? And we'd asked a question back several months ago about something, you know, in this vein, whether people would be interested. We got a lot of people saying, yes, we'd like to, but I was like, you never quite know. And then we had a small focus group. It wasn't everybody, you know, uh, we tend to get very large groups to these to our webinars, but we had a focus group of people there. But it was amazing the number of people who came back and some people saying, we want to go. They've just been completely had their mindset shifted and they've gone back to re- quickly redo an ethics application to bring in, you know, use, use poetry. And I was like, well, this is certainly something that if we give people the opportunity to think and and do in this way that they, they they see intuitively the value in connecting in a on a deeper level mm. with communities and consumers. So mm. it fits a good fit. Good fit. 
Yeah, I think it's really interesting. It's a really important reminder, isn't it, that we need to separate the people within the system and who they innately are and what the system, how the system forces them to behave mm. at work. And that by the organizing system, thinking about how it does things differently can actually really open up new possibilities. It makes me think back to the time when we didn't have enough training capacity for all of the domestic medical graduates Mm -hmm. and they weren't going to be generally registered. We were going to have all these doctors who couldn't work. And by actually going and talking to the clinicians, but putting some loose parameters around it and giving them the space to actually play around with different ideas and concepts within the system that they know and they could work out, well, if we did this differently, we could try this. And just working with them and letting them iterate that, we were able to actually come up with a model which enabled us to overcome that barrier. Mm. And so I think that what you're saying about clinicians are creative. Clinicians have to do this every day with patients to find ways to help them get outcomes within the system. So how do we actually amplify that? Absolutely. And this is about expressing, this is what you're saying, is about expressing leadership in, in different, I mean, it's about thinking about leadership differently, thinking about your role as leaders. And I'm speaking to, you know, everyone has the ability to, well, not has the ability, but everyone has an, has an opportunity to express leadership in some way or form. And it's not just people in positional authority, but certainly people in positional authority have to be thinking quite differently about how they try and approach, you know, the large-scale problems and dealing with them from a social innovation type, which is really about strength in the grassroots. And at the end of the day, like, you know, there's if there's a problem that's a thorn in the flesh for someone at the front line, then they're invested in seeing that problem be dissolved in some way. Mm. And people hear, you know, hear this narrative of change resistance. Is it's, you know, there's, you know, there's, a, there's this term that people will be familiar with. And often I'll often say that there's, you know, there isn't any change resistance they just aren't interested in your agenda that's that's all it is you know it's that they have, mm. they don't see how that agenda links to what they're doing and part of it people then get stuck in trying to craft you know sophisticated messaging to people people on board and, and drifts further and further away from what's really required which is to sit down and i think this is where we have a lot to learn from indigenous communities as well this idea of just mm. sitting in intentions sharing stories understanding each other and how we see the world mm creates the you know the foundation from where you can actually solve problems and people don't think about that they think we'll just go right in we'll diagnose and we'll solve but you need to create an environment that does that and then just what you described you know is is, is essentially that it's about going in and you know having leaving more room to maneuver and more you know more degrees of freedom in that early conversation and not resist the urge to step away into a boardroom and come up with a plan and then trying to manage your workforce into that plan which i think which is uh, where a lot of things run into trouble so just thinking about that concept of power, you know, if we mm-hmm. there's people who have formal organizational power, but then there's all sorts of other subtle forms of power at play in a system. Mm-hmm. How have you seen the role of power play out in yeah. some of the projects that you've been doing and what surprised you and what you've seen? Yeah. So just to make sure we're sort of well, let me, let me let me describe what what I understand from that question, and you can tell me if I'm missing the mark a little. So for me, it's power is you know we could be talking about positional authority, it could be talking mm-hmm. about influence, it could be talking about a number of different things. It's probably pretty evident that everyone who comes to your podcast is looking at things through a complexity lens. So let's just let me just say that I am as well. <laughs> but through a 
from a standpoint of complexity and complex systems, you know, we are all agents in these systems and we have agency by definition. We have agency, therefore we're agents. And I think healthcare is quite interesting because there's different kinds of power that people have, you know. Clinicians have the most power because at the end of the day, they have the power of life and death in some ways, you know, people in front of them. So, but they have very concentrated power mm-hmm. and agency in their work. Whereas, you know, positional leaders and higher levels of the hierarchy in the organization, you know, perhaps don't have as much power as uh, we think they do. You know, they have reach over multiple, you know, nodes in the network. They can do something that in- impacts everyone. But the way that it in- impacts an individual is is maybe, you know, quite diffuse and you can't really make anyone do anything so i think there's an element of that so if you look at you know the way hierarchical organizations tend to view themselves and how they view power that's very different to how where the power actually exists and there are teams that can do amazing things because you have leadership within those teams that have done the work of being able to have a team that can transform pretty rapidly and that's Mm -hmm. immense amount of power but that's positioning the same as maybe the next team that has none of that you know and so i think yeah. i think i like to talk about it in the context of agency and i think we all have agency and i spent a lot of time trying to figure out what my agency in the system is and i i sometimes i don't have positional authority but i do have agency and i think that a lot of that comes from being helpful being being able to you know really spend the time and take interest in how other people view the world and what's important to them mm-hmm. and then really doing the work, hard work of trying to be helpful in that you know and not mm-hmm. not impose necessarily you know, your viewpoint from, you know, from a vantage, but rather actually becoming useful in the context of what they want. And I think the ability to, and and that's given me opportunities. It's obviously led to, you know, my direct leadership investing in some of these ideas. I mean, Brijdas was a pretty, you know, out there idea. So we're going to take all these funds and apply that to uh, relationships. And we don't actually have projects. That That's something will come later. Mm-hmm. So we're funding relationships now. And that's that's required some, you know, acceptance of risk. And that's coming from you know, seen to be someone who can, who would be, you know, good steward of the of that resource. And that's a kind of power as well. So you have that power, or not power over, but you have that agency within your teams that people trust you to do certain things. And I think trust and a track record of being someone who can deliver on the things you, and then being able to say, no, I can't do that because of these reasons, that mm-hmm. that's not going to be something I want to be involved in having some integrity around that. Those are the sorts of areas where I've tried to invest in myself in building that. Sometimes you do wonder why, you know, you, you wish you had more positional authority to just make certain things happen. But I think it's there's ways of expressing that power and, and gaining power in a system to be able to do positive things or doing very evil things, but something quite different to how I think the world tends to think about these things. Yeah. it's When you're trying to achieve system change, I think that sometimes you can achieve a lot more with relational power than you can with the very formal authoritative power. I know when I read one of the articles about Bridge Labs, which we'll make sure there's a link to that in the show notes for people, I really like the idea that Bridge Labs, through relational power, has really developed a whole series of networks and an ecosystem Mm -hmm. that is actually working together towards a broad, common sort of purpose. They want to they don't have a specific place where it wants to land, but it's under that broad heading of let's improve the system, let's get better health outcomes, let's, you know, solve, you know, not solve, but work on some of these complex problems and see if we can make things better than they are now. Mm. And so there's a whole leadership piece around tapping into people's shared purpose, 
not shared values, but purpose, mm. because what they value would potentially be quite different. And you're bringing all of those different lenses into that ecosystem and it, they're feeding each other's thinking, their ideas, they're bringing their own expertise, they're learning from other people as they go, and it's generative. They're Absolutely, building yeah. on each other. That's a um, great word, yeah. Yeah. I love what you've done. It's just wonderful that, to see how, to me, it brings to mind that idea of unleashing the people within the system. Mm. You know, and the potential and the possibilities that are there and creating space for those yeah. voices to float up. It's, yeah. You know, it's it's interesting. I, I'm constantly embarrassed by, you know, the recognition of this as being something innovative. I know it is. I do know it is. But in some ways, it's like, well, this is something that's, this is as, a, you know, as old as humanity itself in some ways. You know, this is mm. not, it's rediscovery of things that we've known. It's not, you know... And, and and complexity science provides a nice language over the top of some of this. But this is like this basic wisdom. You look at anything, you know, I often say that, you know, you, you take any lasting change. And I mean, nothing is permanent, but say anything that's lasted over 100 years, you know, look back into history and, and see and uh, take four or five examples, whether it's, you know, it's a religious movement, whether it's a social movement, whether it's something else, you know, technology, I don't know, what, whatever it might be, some large change, there'd be opportunism as part of it. There's, you know, taking advantage of what, what opportunities are available and people being able to constantly scaffold on the basis of the opportunities over there. So that's staying true to what the environment's asking of you. But it's all relational. There's a lot of these things never, you know, there was never, a, you know, a committee that sat down and said, let's do this or invested, you know, a, a big, so, uh, you know, a huge amount of funds and that's what drove it through. Mm. Most of these things are resource independent. They've been relational. They've been shared purpose. And I like that point about it being shared purpose rather than shared values because, you know, there's an amount of this diversity of people's positions is in incredibly important. So if everyone has the same same values, you're you're aspiring to homogeneity, which is not what gives you it's not the engine room is diversity within these things. And but for me it's not shy away from words like unleashing because it implies again uh, you know that we have a vision for the system we go and do it. For me it's just about allowing self-organization to do what it does. And it's about finding ways of amplifying that in the ways that the agents who own these you know, it's their it's their innovation. It's not our innovation. Mm -hmm. It's about allowing for that, and then using you know the sort of allowing the system to be able to sense make. And I think this is a big part of complexity is that people often talk about you know there's different ways of thinking about complexity in complex systems, and I tend to favor more of that experiential, organic rather than you know these categorical scientific type approaches that people mm -hmm. when there's the space for that. But and we are really good at sense-making within complexity. And I think systems need to be able to sense-make within complexity, and systems being groups of individuals, teams, and that's how they discover novel solutions for the problems that they've got, they, how they discover novel spaces in which they can act purposefully, and creating many-to-many, -many, healthy many-to-many -many networks is the way that everything, coral reefs through to rainforests, through to, you know, social movements run up, overthrow a, a tyrant in a developing country, whatever it might be, it's the same thing. It's it's really healthy networks with joint purpose, with room to maneuver. And it's mm. uh, it's just trying to work in that space. And I see myself as being part of that as opposed to being someone leading it. Um, yes. But have the benefit of seeing across the landscape a little bit more than, say, somebody else who's in the thick of doing the change making. Mm. So you can look up where are some patterns, some things that you could pick up and plant some of the ideas that are emerging over here that people are finding some value in thinking who else 
might actually and be that's just what I'm really good at. I'm just good that. at connecting people and saying, Hey, I see what you're saying. Yeah. And there's this other person doing this other thing. And let me just let me make that connection easier for you by doing A, B, or C, whether it's actually providing a little bolus of funds when we had them. We don't have as much as, at the moment, but you know, when we had them, we were able to say, Right. And this is you know, this is an entrepreneurial aspect of what we've done. You know, we get a phone call and someone say, Hey, we're looking at this uh, particular issue. We're not quite sure about how designers fit into it. But we kind of think there's something there, but we're really passionate about it. We, you know, we want to work with our consumers and we've had situations where people call up and they're asking for, you know, a package of resources to hand to consumers so that the admission, their experience in hospital won't be as jarring as what, you know, what often is when mm-hmm. they come in un- underprepared. This is more in the pediatric setting for parents, you know, and so we did a piece of work there. And, you know, the phone call came in on a Friday and we had a team of designers at this health service by Wednesday, the following week. And and effectively what they said was, you're looking at that as, you know, yeah, I understand this graphic design element, but we can actually help you redesign the entire consumer journey, you know, and then and suddenly we have augmented reality in there. We have, you know, whole consumer co-creation, there's activation of spaces. It just transformed. But part of that was, so I, I look at that and I, and I think, and often people will say, well, how do you systematize that? I say, you can't, you just can't. You have to be able to, because, mm-hmm. you know, the next time that happens, they will go away saying, that didn't quite work. We didn't quite land. That's not happening. And so it's allowing the system to explore, you know, parallel possibilities or as Dave Snowden often says, you know, the adjacent yeah. possible. And so it's about yes. exploring that adjacent possible. And th- these sorts of things allow them to explore that adjacent possible. And I think that's what we do. And being humble to say, well, and we've had times we've gone in and, and you know, small little interpersonal things can derail the whole project and we don't end up doing anything or someone you know external comes in and says something that that's perceived as being slightly critical of the work that's been done to date and that doesn't work but that's you've got to make peace with that being part mm-hmm. of the you know the landscape of possibilities because then you learn something about well maybe the, and then i will then i learn what sorts of connections then to facilitate which ones need maybe some pre-work to help mm-hmm. and so we learn our methodology changes as a result of that it's very organic i know before i got really interested in complexity science. I used to use the term how I get things done in the complex system that is health is you zig and you zag. Yeah. yeah, yeah. (laughs) You don't go from A, you might go from A to somewhere around B (laughs) because you never land exactly on B. But to get there, you'll have a project plan because the system requires you to have a plan of how you're going to get there. But the reality is you keep changing it and it keeps evolving and it's about making sense of what's happening around you and then playing around with different things to see what works, what sort of starts to get some traction, what else is working well that you might be able to leverage Mm. and just what you're really looking for is that forward momentum exactly and in the in the right yeah in the direction that you want to head in rather than and if it starts going completely off track it's just knowing when you've got to say well that didn't work let's how do we change direction how do we shut that down and as you know that's it in a nutshell isn't it yeah well that that's it i mean and this is what i tend to like to de-intellectualize navigating complexity for people because it in a way it can become a barrier to people who don't necessarily feel that they want to go down an intellectual journey. And and so it's good to appeal to intuition in these sorts of situations because even if people don't bring that to work, they bring it to their relationships, bring it to other things. And everybody knows how to navigate complexity. They just don't bring it to certain parts of their lives, right? And so that, that whole idea of zigging and zagging is exactly what it is. And I, I've started 
a following. There's someone called John Flack, F-L-A-C-H. I'm not sure that that's how he says his surname, but he's a really uh, well-regarded cognitive psychologist who does a lot of work in, you know, and in sort of similar vein to Don Norman, you know, has following in a human factors realm and designers follow him. And, and he has this very nice, um, he does these illustrated comics with a, with, with a colleague, which he puts on, on LinkedIn. You can find him there. And he talks a lot about this from this, the sense-making aspects of, of complexity and, and, and how decision-making and decision-making is a big part of cognitive psychology. And he tells this story of, and this is apparently a real, uh, a real example. I should have gone and read the details of it again, but I'm sure you could find it. It's about this, these, maybe it's the Napoleonic Wars, I'm not sure, but there was a military team that got, uh, a platoon that got lost in the mountains in the Pyrenees, perhaps, uh, somewhere up near the Alps. And they, they, you know, they were, facing imminent starvation and death and suddenly someone finds a map in a backpack so they go and put it down look at the map and they say okay well they they orient themselves and they decide to move in a particular direction they go and they find and they finally find the way off the mountain and they're they saved turned out was a map of the wrong mountain range it wasn't actually a map of what they were in but he he makes the point is that what did that actually help them was the map useful in navigating that complex situation was absolutely was because it it spurred them on to make decisions on the basis of of what they could see and so it was this iterative process of muddling through that helped them, you know, resolve that complexity. And and I think that's it's so profoundly applicable to the sorts of things we we do. And we always think, oh, and, and this is the thing, I think as you get more and more familiar and seasoned in your craft of navigating complexity, you just develop more confidence in the zigging and zagging. I, I don't think you become better at it in any way. It's just you zig and zag and you read the situation, but you get more confident in realizing that is the nature of the doing. It's mm. not about, and, and someone will say, no, no, we should sit down and plan this out and come up with a you know, really analytical approach. And it's like, well, you don't know because the reality is out there and yeah. you only have a version of reality and reality will teach you what's possible by probing reality. Mm. And so those are the probes. You go and try and do something and you hear, learn and you, but being available and attentive is part of that. And I think because we've heard about iteration and plan, do, study, act cycles in healthcare, we tend to think, oh yeah, we understand this, but it's a very different, experientially and qualitatively different idea than just doing plan, do, study, act cycles, which is mm. you analyze and then you, you deploy something and then you see if that worked. It's not that. It's you probe complexity, see what it tells you. You're trying to reduce your degrees of freedom. So you don't want to actually have every option available. You're actually closing mm. off options is actually a good thing. And then through that, you become more capable of taking that next step and that next step. And I think that's what people take that away. I think that's a really important thing. And I think if you're in public service or a very large organization where there's a lot of rules that you need to work mm. within, it's finding ways to work really flexibly within those rules um, Absolutely. Yeah. to push the boundaries, but working out which are the rules that you can push and which are the ones that you can't. Yeah, and that becomes and a bit of an art as well. <laughs> yes, because, yeah, and because you can break the wrong rule and that's the end of your journey. But I think this is the other part of this. You know, you talk, we're talking about rules. I think we tend to just accept that, you know, not, not bureaucracy. I want to talk, say something about bureaucratic ways of doing things. And I make a distinction between, you know, organizational structures and they have a purpose. But, but when we say bureaucratic ways of doing things is that we tend to be rules driven, impose into a system from the top down, reduce flexibility. We prescribe ways of doing things that don't actually align with how People actually do things. So that, that's what I mean mm. by this bureaucratic way of doing things. But, but that's not something you have, that's not a given. You don't have to accept that. So, mm. you know, we'll often, people say, oh, well, you know, the policy and this, they write policy, but policy is an incredibly powerful tool to achieve long-term change. Mm. And in fact, a lot of the really good complexity stuff is in the policy domain. If you go and read policy literature, global innovation policy, there's a lot in the policy space. So important. The tools. issue is policy interpretation is often the issue. 
not necessarily always the policy itself or no, I know, but even, the choices that are made about policy implementation. Yes, and, but I mean, even policies and procedures and guidelines can accommodate flexibility. That's that's what I mean. It's about, I suppose, you can put two different leaders um, who might have formal positional power over the implementation of a particular policy approach mm. and the mindset and the way that they approach it, one will enable innovation will enable that flexibility within the rules because they understand the policy intent Mm -hmm. and it's still true to the policy intent, whereas someone else will take a very fixed black and white view of this is my view of the world. I'm not open to inputs from everywhere else Mm -hmm. to understand different ways of looking at this to achieve the policy intent. So you end up with very different outcomes based on particular leaders that control certain levers yeah oh absolutely i mean from from that standpoint 100 percent in agreement the thing i would add to that is uh, and i guess this might be partly because of recent conversations i've been and i'm thinking about it from a risk perspective and yeah. we often i mean write policy for many different things we write policy to manage risk and but but when we write policy to manage risk we can sometimes operate under the assumption that you know we, we can operate under a very bimodal assumption where there is um there is a risk-free state and there is a risky state and you yes. know we have to keep you in the risk-free state but the reality is if you think about it as a continuum then you realize there's always some risk and certain amount of risk accept- acceptance is necessary so just from from that perspective if you're writing policy for and I'm, I'm going back to an example that in a previous role not in healthcare I was in another organization you know i was i was leading an innovation program and uh, you know it was a question was asked to me i'm not sure why i was asked that question but i was asked to assist a team which is trying to you know come up with a you know a person centered plan for a person who was in their care who had, you know, quite substantial body image issues and they wanted to go to the beach and didn't want to go swim between the flags. They were like, well, you know, there's a risk here and person not a particularly good swimmer. And it was just in that situation, there was two options. One was, here's what the rules state, you know, and there wasn't actually any rules about that particular situation, but generally the interpretation of the policy as being, you know, we have to risk manage these situations, that's unacceptable. But there was no no latitude for thinking creatively around that particular person's needs. And I mean, I'm, and, and, and I encouraged them to go down a certain path where they were able to manage the risk differently, which meant, you know, having conversation with lifeguards. It meant having different, you know, and, and going out of our way a little bit. But as far as the management of the actual risk, still the risk got managed, but you were able to manage the risk in a way that didn't undermine the, you know, the actual intent. Yeah. You know, why are we trying to, we're trying to provide safe services, not, not safety in the absence of services. And so I think yeah. those sorts of questions is, you know, it comes back to your point about interpretation of the policy environment. Mm. But sometimes you write rules and procedures that are our, that become our interpretations of the policy environment mm. that don't necessarily have to be done in that particular way. So I think we don't have to accept that. I guess the point I was making earlier was we tend to accept that. We tend to go into hiding and do what we need to do you know, under the cover of darkness. And we think that's the only way of making it. But I think you can, you can sort of wrestle with that to create a more conducive policy environment because I think that's what gives you where all of the hidden stuff becomes more open. Then you can actually manage risks in a more intentional way. Yeah. I think that word manage risks or that phrase manage risks is really important because it's not about avoiding risks. It's recognizing there's a whole spectrum of options Mm. that you've got when it comes to risk. So is there an opportunity you can leverage? Do you accept a certain range of things that there's nothing you can do to change them? So it's just if it happens, it happens and we'll have to adapt and respond to it. Or are there things that we can actually do to reduce our risks down to, you know, a more acceptable, comfortable 
level or you know, yeah. are there certain things that you want to absolutely avoid at all costs? So it's really, there's a complexity of options. Yeah. And there's resilience in teams that you can build and tap into. And I don't mean resilience of individuals. I mean, like resilience as a more of a systems property where, you know, you can, the scenario based. So for me as a leader, if I was in this previous role, job, I was a leader. And I, I, want, I just reminded of a quote by Paul Plesek. He's a, a very well-regarded complexity expert in healthcare. He's not retired, but when I was in on my fellowship in the US, I, uh, I sat next in an office next to him and he was kind of a, a informal mentor to me. And he often says, talks about finding a container for anxiety. And risk management is sort of doing that. And so leaders need a container for their anxiety. And he, was, he would often say that in the context of, if you want to try something new and they're not willing to reorganize your shift on the basis of your idea, uh, sort of reorganize your your team on the basis of the idea, well, maybe you can try to get them to give you the space to reorganize one shift Mm. because that's more, that's container for their anxiety. And so for me, when I'm talking to these teams, I want a container for my anxiety as well, you know, because I'm thinking, I don't want to make a decision here that gets someone harmed. But then one way of doing that is working through some scenarios is actually saying, well, if you're Mm. faced with this, what would you do? If you're faced with that, what would you do? And Mm. then having this repertoire of responses and going into that environment with that, you think, well, you know, we know that there's going to be once the risks are identified or they emerge, you've got something to do with it. You're not going to fail catastrophically. Mm. And so building that resilience into your systems is, uh, which is your teams and technology processes is how you manage this. You know, you build, you get a container for anxiety, but you also build in the capacity for dynamic risk management, which allows you to absorb a bit more at the front and then tackle that as you go. And I think that's where there's some such wonderful opportunities with virtual reality and augmented reality because they create spaces where you can put people in situations that are likely to play out and let them learn as mm. they go without actually harming somebody yeah. or catastrophically failing in some other way. I know I've, I've met someone else who's done some really interesting work in that space and particularly in the mining industry. Yes, You're yes. thinking about how do they actually work through a whole range of different scenarios, prepare for what could be possible, and then when they know how they would respond, people are trained, and then when something does emerge, people know and they get much better outcomes because mm. it's familiar, it's not something that's you know, as novel and as frightening, and, and they've actually developed the confidence that you were talking about that's because right. they've failed at it previously, but they learned from that failure. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean and it's 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 gonna be a, a huge area, I think, of, of quite exciting innovation. Often people there's there's a there's a group of colleagues within health who, you know, are very anti technology and this often you have that in all industries and some people are really you know, this is you have the spread of people who are, you know, out there using chat GPT for making their, their lives easy right now and there's others are saying I'll wait until it's all sort of sorted before <laughs> I even engage with any of that. But one one of the things I think that's quite interesting about the virtual reality space for trying to look at you know, practicing scenarios is it, it actually aligns with what is the contemporary understanding of how people make complex decisions. So what we're actually, so if you look at this, there's this Gary Klein's work, there's a whole naturalistic decision, sorry, naturalistic decision making field, you know, which studies this, how do people make, make decisions? And they've studied firefighters, policemen, people in, you know, in, in, in healthcare. And a big part of it, is and this happens subconsciously and comes from experiences is running of the you run mental simulations based on the data that you have in front of you this is a situation i'm faced with what does this look like and then you construct that none of this happens analytically it happens quite you know synthetically and you come up with a couple of 
strategies which you think will fit. And that's sort of when you start engaging with that idea, when the idea emerges. So we're running mental simulations constantly. So it's actually not that far. It's just a matter of being able to do that rather than, you know, in your own head, doing that in a team environment. And so I think Mm -hmm. it's really just a normal extension of how expertise works anyway. Just taking that into a team environment. Yeah. And I think it's, I know I used to frustrate that the hell out of one of my teams because you were working in such a complex environment and you would have been making sense of all the information that's available to you, whether that's data or things you've heard from other people or a conversation that you had with someone in the lift or someone called you and you had a phone call. And so you'd think you were on a particular track, but then suddenly you would get this new piece of information and it would completely change the lens that you looked at the situation through. And so then you go, um, I think we need to change track. I think we can't do this anymore because that's not going to work yeah. for this reason. And so, yeah, so we agree with you. We do that all the time, just at work and everyday life, even thinking about things, how things play out with your kids at home, you know, the things that you assume, the assumptions that you make, and then new pieces of information come exactly. to light. So people are probably much more complexity fit than they realize. Um, And it's about becoming more intentional in some of the tools and the, the approaches that they use so that they gain more confidence with what they're doing. Absolutely. And I I think that's something I think would be a really important take home for your listeners as well is that, you know, there's a war, not a war, but there's this, you know, these two, two camps are very, they're kind of battling each other at the moment for our, you know, as far as the narrative of, you know, change in the modern world. And we, we get caught in the middle of it. And I think healthcare has tended to, I mean, all industries, I think healthcare is no exceptions, all I'm saying, has tended to think in, in ways that are very pipeline oriented. And we, as a result of that, one, we don't create a lot of change that is fit for purpose. That That's certainly the problem. But the other problem is when we do create change, we, we have massive problems with sustainability. Things don't stick. And this is not a problem if you approach it from a complexity perspective. It's just not a problem. And I think this is what people don't recognize or realize enough. You know, because you look at the implementation science literature at the moment, you know, they're all talking about sustainability and they're all following it up and say they've got all got theories about this kind of thing. But I think fundamentally... The idea of implementing something into a system itself is fundamentally antithetical to complexity. What you need to be doing is folding in things and then the self-organization determines that how much of that actually is relevant. And then you, you grow those things and you think Snowden's got one of uh, really nice, he says, all you have is, you know, oh, I can't remember, something about emergence and constraints and, you know, you amplify the things that you like and you try your best to stamp out the things you don't, you know, yeah. and then the, yeah. and that, that's all you've got. That's all you have. And yeah. But the thing is, if you do that, whatever gets accepted into a system will, it's by definition, it's something that the system wants. The system being the people, I mean, some, when you say system, it can conjure up different notions, but I mean, mm. people who do the work, you know, and the, and the people they do it with. So the actual, the, the organic system of the teams that do it, if they accept that in or an aspect of that in, that you cannot take that back out of the system. It'll, it's part yeah. of their, their new reality. And we do all this work in trying to pull things away from that under the you know pretext of being scientific or whatever it might be, which is all not true because it's it's applying a certain way of scientific thinking. It's not the only way of being of thinking scientifically. But to, to extract something out, try and find active ingredients, then trying to spread and scale and then implement them back down and does not work. It's never worked in all of human history. 
And often it'll it'll have some impacts, but won't have the impacts you're looking for. And then you'll be chasing yeah. sustainability and you'll never find it because it's it's not coming through the natural process of how change actually evolves. Uh, and change happens all the time, but it's coming from a very different source. And I think yeah. people have to spend the time to understand that. And it aligns more with how we naturally navigate the complexities of normal life. It's how we, yeah, you know, you, 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 you do, you know, I've got four children. You try your best to, you know, provide meaningful inputs into their li- the life journeys. You fail at that sometimes, you know, often. And, but then, you know, they're, they're also a product of everything else they do. And there's all these trade-offs that, and so eventually it's, it's, it's who they are and who you are and relationships that you had, the opportunities within which you express that, you know, um, that you've, the conversation you had on a long trip on a holiday. You don't know how these things will come together, but eventually if you stay the course, you, you know, you end up with hopefully, you know, with, with outcomes that you're happy with and they're happy with, but it's never going to be exactly what you wanted. And that's essentially mm-hmm. relationship with, with any system, children or, uh, or otherwise. Yeah. When you were talking about resilience, yeah, and I know what I'm going to say if anyone like Dave Snowden did a lot of work in this area, but I really also like some of um, Nicholas Taleb's concepts around anti-fragility. Mm-hmm. And actually thinking about how as the system is, you know, as organizations and people and organizations are experiencing things, you know, do you only want them to bounce back and be resilient? Or do you want them to continue to learn and grow and be stronger by sort of taking that sort of anti-fragility approach. And now I know yeah. um, Dave Snowden and Nicholas Taleb have little Twitter wars and things like that. Of course they do, yeah. So, <laughs> but I, I do like that concept of, you know, when you're, you're looking at a challenging issue or a problem, not just how do I get through this and bounce back to where I am, but how do I actually – learn and grow as I go through this and how does this do you know the healthcare service learn and grow and end up better for having had the experience yes so can I have a longish answer for this Mm. okay so resilience as is understood well not as is understood but as, as is put forward by you know several complexity theorists and anti-fragility and all of that is one set of concepts. When I say resilience, I'm actually pulling from resilience engineering and safety okay. too, which is has a slightly different flavor. So, you know, from a, if you look at the term resilience, you know, from a, from a, from the source, it's from a, comes from material science and psychology, basically. You know, so a resilient material is one that bounces back. So then it's got a certain, you know, and has certain plasticity, and then it can it take a hit and doesn't fail catastrophically. So if you have something that's spongy, might be more resilient than something that is, you know, like a diamond, which is robust, which is, it mm-hmm. can take a lot of hits. But once it fails, it fails catastrophically. So there's that. So resilience engineering is about, is is more in that space of, well, actually, let me step back for a second. So when we talk about resilience engineering and safety too, we're talking about really the focus is on building adaptive capacity within these systems in order to produce outcomes that we seek, which are often we expect these outcomes will come from a high reliability process. So if we, you know, if we optimize and perfectly design every aspect of a workers and you know work is, then we'll just get these incredibly consistent performance. And so resilience engineering is almost speaking into that space, which is the high reliability space, which is about process driven improvement. What they're saying is that you can get fairly consistent outcomes, not necessarily reliable outcomes, but consistent outcomes by investing in the adaptive capacity of these teams, because what you're actually getting is that they have to produce the same outcome with 
different resources, with a different context of operations, you know, with different knowledge sets and all of that. As the system is actually pro- producing these outcomes under uncertainty, under ambiguity and all of that. And so the focus becomes about building the adaptive capacity to get it right and produce that outcome consistently as opposed to trying to limit the bandwidth of operation so people have no wiggle room so they can only do the one thing because we know that they never have to produce the one thing. That's, you know, the line we draw through our clinical pathways and all of that is just a fictitious line. That's the average of everything, but that's not, doesn't represent anything from end to end. And so resilience engineering is really talking about that as in, Resilient outcomes as a product of adaptive work uh, happening mm-hmm. under uncertainty. And so it, it's in the same realm, but it's slightly different. So when you say resilience, build, building resilience is about being able to build adaptation in those situations, being able to sense when your strategies aren't going to plan, being able mm-hmm. to find ways. And so that's about the repertoire of responses as well, you know, having, and so yeah. that's where that is. But certainly about bouncing back and anti-fragility. I mean, I, I find Nicholas Talib's books interesting but hard to follow and and, yes. and it's and I, you know but i know he's saying really important things but i just can't seem to lock that and i i tend to be you know I, I've, I've read a lot of this and and you know i i feel i'm at a point now where if the ideas don't directly speak to the space i mean i feel my toolkit's pretty full you know I, i've got what i want i want to actually spend time applying it but i think in some ways the term resilience is a hindsight label applied to how things happened, it's very difficult to operationalize that into the here and now. Because if all you have, and as often I tell people is that, you know, people are making plans for, you know, 10 years from now and all the rest of it. And, but if you really come down to it, in this moment, you only have one or two options. You know, either keep doing what you're doing or do something different. And, yeah. and it's, it's really about how do I spend my time today on something else. And, and I think focusing on building, if I'm working on improvement project, focusing on building teams of adapt- adaptive capacities, well, that's really real and tangible. And mm-hmm. so I like that. But the sort of disembodied notion of resilience that, you know, you're able to bounce back and it goes closer to the psychological resilience idea, which is, mm. you know, building up people's capacities to, you know, take a hit. And I think that's that's not dealing with sometimes dealing with the core issue, which mm. is, um, you know, why are we putting people in this, in this situation in the first place? And I think it's just a hard idea to get right in practice that I tend to shy away from that side of resilience, and resilience as a concept. Yeah. So... Sachin, I know we're going to have to wrap this conversation up at some point, so I wonder if this is a good time to ask you Mm -hmm. off the back of that part of our conversation about what does thriving and complexity mean to you personally? Yeah, well, thriving, again, is a... I think it's surviving, you know, being productive. First of all, I mean, I'd say thriving to me means, you know, being able to do productive things despite the situation you're in. It's not about success in a, you know, in a conventional sense. It's about being able to read what you've got in the opportunities you have and the challenges you've gotten and, and feeling like I've got some agency. It's about building agency. For me, it's, it's really mm-hmm. about that. I think thriving in complexity is about bringing it right back to saying, what do I have agency and how do I want to apply that today based on, you know, there's going to be a lot of failures and wins and losses as part of that. That's just the nature of how things are. And I, and I recently started spending a lot of time looking at complex responsive organizing, which is Ralph Stacey's work, you know, and as a way of trying to make it a lot more, I'll just say very quickly, I think um, it's about finding an ability to apply complexity in the here and now and actually finding, mm-hmm. you know, being able to see your options more clearly and finding what you can do with some uh, with in- intentionality in that. And that's really for me what thriving complexity is, quite simple. Oh, that's great. Now, you've recently launched a YouTube channel called the hashtag healthcare, hashtag systems, hashtag innovation, hashtag Network. Well, it's a health system innovation network. The hashtags are just to get the algorithms to work oh, in our favor. Yeah. 
Oh, <laughs> and um, it's all about sharing focused content to help leaders and practitioners close the theory practice gap in patient safety and healthcare quality. So we're going to include a link to that YouTube channel in the show notes. Brilliant, thank you. So if people have heard things that um, they're interested in today, would like to hear more about the things that um, you can share, such and that they'll be able to do that. But how else can people connect with you online? Well, LinkedIn's the best bet. I have a Twitter handle, which uh, I still don't understand how Twitter works, so I'm struggling with that one. But LinkedIn, I'm fairly active on, and I'm very happy people reach out to me. Uh, they could contact me via the Bridge Labs email, which you can get through the Clinical Excellence Queensland website. So if you typed in my name, Satyan Chari, in Bridge Labs, it'll bring a link to, um, yeah, they'll be able to get in touch that way. That's great. Well, Satyan, i really looking forward to seeing what you do Next, I think um, some of the things that Bridge Labs have been able to achieve over the last couple of years has been absolutely phenomenal, particularly knowing what that system is and, and, and the broader range of challenges that it faces. So really looking forward to seeing what happens. And as always, I love our chats. Likewise. And I look forward to having many more. <laughs> I'll have you on my uh, YouTube channel, I think, but at some point we start doing more and more content in that, in that sort of fashion. But yeah, thanks for having me. And um, it's, been, it's been really fun. Thanks, Sachin. Thanks for listening. If you had something you want to revisit or explore in more detail, you can check out the show notes. If you enjoyed this episode and you like helping others to open their thinking, please share it with others, post about it on social media, or leave a rating and review. As always, a big thank you to Leon Fitton and the team at the Podcast Concierge. That's all for this episode. I'll see you next time.